Albert Einstein, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, John F. Kennedy, Tony Robbins, Michael Phelps, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. What else do they have in common? Well, they all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that, do you? You know what you hear even less about? The successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm an attorney, not a doctor, a lifelong student, not a coach. I'm also the creator of Cortography, a patent-pending system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your superpowers, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest superpowers. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode 62 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I am going to start today by reading an Apple podcast review from Karak.tx. I am so appreciative for your review, Karak.tx, and I want to acknowledge you and thank you for it. So here goes. Love this podcast. I'm just now dipping my toe into the podcast world, and this one had me hooked pretty immediately. I was recently diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, and this podcast has been truly instrumental in my mental health journey. Great dialogue with guests, hearing from other women who share the daily challenges of ADD, provided a much-needed sense of community. I most enjoy the research-backed content that helps with understanding, managing, loving, and thriving as a woman with ADD. Thank you so much for your kind comments. Correct.tx, you know I love those gold stars. And I really appreciate the fact that you took the time to write this review and post it. Okay, so today we are going to talk about ADHD and cannabis. And I'm really going to focus on the adolescent ADHD brain because you will discover that there is a big difference between the adolescent brain and what do I call it? The grown up brain. So I'm ADHD, right? For me personally, it means I'm willing to consider all sides to every story, and I don't care how firmly entrenched that story is. I'm always looking to challenge the status quo, and I'm always asking why. So when my 17-year-old son came to me, maybe it was a year ago, probably more like two years ago, with information on the history of cannabis, I was all in and totally willing to listen. And this is a bit of the history. So in the 1600s, the British government encouraged colonial farmers to produce hemp, a form of cannabis with low levels of THC, which is the psychoactive ingredient in cannabis. In the 19th century, more potent forms of cannabis were used as ingredients in many medicinal products, and they were sold widely in pharmacies. However, after the Mexican Revolution, a wave of Mexican immigrants poured into the U.S., (laughs) Who else uses that term poured in when describing immigrants? You know what I'm talking about, right? And they popularized the recreational use of cannabis, which they called marijuana. Of course, as a country, we are always willing to blame immigrants for all of our problems, and this was no exception. 
Anti-cannabis campaigners used the term marijuana because it sounded more Mexican and it played better off of anti-immigrant sentiments. Rumors quickly spread that Mexicans were distributing this demon weed or loco weed to American schoolchildren. The drug then became associated with West Indian immigrants and extended to African Americans, jazz musicians, prostitutes, and lower class whites. So in 1913, California, of all states, passed the first state cannabis prohibition law, probably because we share a border with Mexico. And this state cannabis prohibition law was sponsored by the Board of Pharmacy, even though there was still little public concern about cannabis. But then the Great Depression hit, and of course, that furthered resentment and fear of immigrants and minorities, and a bunch of pseudo-research linked cannabis to violence and crime and other socially deviant behavior. Marijuana was said to lead to insanity and criminality and death. And then the movie Reefer Madness came out, which was a propaganda film all about the evil weed. And people were terrified, and marijuana was effectively criminalized after that. But then in the 60s and 70s, those that were part of the anti-war movement, you know, the hippies, adopted marijuana. And so Presidents John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, they ended up commissioning reports, I'm sure, because there was a lot of fear, not only among parents, but also among um, just, you know, the country at large. And so they found what Kennedy's and Johnson's uh, reports found was that marijuana use, it didn't induce violence and it didn't lead to use of heavier drugs. Nixon, however, he didn't like the counterculture. He didn't like hippies. He didn't like the anti-war movement, right? So he classified cannabis as a schedule one drug right there alongside heroin and LSD. And what this meant is that physicians and scientists, they could no longer even get cannabis for research. So research about it and on it stopped altogether. Now, you know I'm all about social and political justice, and there is no question that drug arrests are racially skewed. So one of the main arguments today to legalize cannabis is because people of color are the ones who are disproportionately arrested, and it ruins lives. And of course, I still wholeheartedly agree with this, because when people of color are arrested, it's usually when they're very young, and it literally just starts the ball rolling, and they can never recover from it. But the politics around cannabis, that's one thing, right? Whether it's healthy is an entirely different thing. You also probably know that I have a 21-year-old daughter and a 17-year-old son. And I will tell you that in many adolescent and young adult circles, cannabis' use, weed's use, is much more prevalent than alcohol. And I can even see the difference between my two kids. In my son's circle of friends, he's the younger one, he's 17, almost 18, it was and is much more popular than drinking. These kids really believe that it's much healthier than drinking. And before I did this research, honestly, I would have completely agreed. I mean, if someone had asked me, would you rather have your son occasionally drink or smoke weed, I would have said the latter. Now, I'm truly, honestly, not sure which one's worse. Obviously, I would prefer that my son and daughter do neither. But, you know, I had never heard of anyone getting stoned and getting into bar brawls or getting really aggressive and doing stupid stuff. I mean, when you think of someone who's smoking weed, you think of someone who's sleeping in the corner and they're all peace and love, right? Um, 
I'd also never heard of an adolescent or young adult fatally overdosing from cannabis or having life-threatening withdrawal. So cannabis just really seemed safer to me. I should also tell you that I'm in California where cannabis is legal. And I know many, many people in the cannabis industry. I'm up in the wine country and it's almost like, you know, all the people that were growing grapes, now they're considering, you know, growing cannabis. I have a college professor friend who is an executive in a big cannabis company. Um, and we have a dispensary that's not 10 minutes from our house. It feels like Nordstrom inside. I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's very nice. And last year, I decided that since I had heard so much about cannabis and ADHD and how it's supposed to slow our fast-moving brains down so well, I thought, you know what? I mean, medicine doesn't work for me. I'm going to try this. So I went into our local dispensary and I consulted with what they call a bud master. And he pulled out a binder and he looked up ADHD. And in his binder, it said that because our brains move so fast, that the thought is we should choose a strain of cannabis that slows our brains down. But their research has in fact showed that we should do the opposite and we should choose a strain of cannabis that speeds our brain up, which I thought was really interesting. So based on his recommendations, I bought all kinds of cannabis concoctions. I bought a vape pen. I bought mints. I think I bought some candy. I bought a bunch of stuff and it was super expensive. Again, ADHD medication, it doesn't work for me. It just creates anxiety. I get grumpy. I get irritable. So I was somewhat hopeful that, you know, maybe this would work for me. Although I probably should have known better because in high school and college, when my friends were getting high, I could not understand the interest in it. And in truth, I've never been attracted to, you know, chemicals that alter my brain. Like, I don't like that feeling of being out of control. I think I'm a control freak. <laughs> of course, you know, alcohol, you know, I do socially drink. I don't, you know, but I'm limited usually to, I like cocktails. I don't even like wine. I'm in the wine country. I have plenty of friends that are in the wine business. One of my closest friends is a sommelier. You'd think that wine would have rubbed off on me and the appreciation for it, but it, it just hasn't. I'd much rather have a cocktail. And I've noticed as I've gotten older, I cannot drink the way I used to drink. I mean, I am literally limited I'm half Asian, so I could never drink that much anyway, but I am literally today limited to probably two drinks and even two drinks sometimes the next day, I don't feel great. I know this sounds Pollyanna, but what has always worked best for my brain? You know it. It's a hard workout. That always makes me feel the best and I have no side effects. I don't feel like crap the next day, but anyway... I digress. I bought all these cannabis products. And again, I don't shy away from trying new things. But I have to tell you, you know, the first, I, I think it was the vape pen that I tried, or maybe it was the mints. I don't know. But I came out of the kitchen, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, and my husband looked at my eyes and he was like, what the hell happened to you? I looked like a horror movie. They were completely bloodshot, red, They and, and they really burned, Right. I also, I felt tired and a little bit loopy, not bad, but really the worst side effect or symptom were those bloodshot eyes. I was like, I could never do this um, unless I was in my home. Like I could never go anywhere, right? So bottom line, what I discovered, you know, in my trials was for me personally, none of these cannabis THC products had any positive effects at all. And so since then, I've been meaning to do some research on this because I have seen so much about the medicinal and health benefits of cannabis. 
On top of that, I started seeing information about the fact that cannabis is good for the ADHD brain. There's actually a doctor in Southern California that treats adolescent ADHD brains or ADHD patients with cannabis, which seemed kind of scary to me. What I have discovered in looking for research and looking for, you know, some science-based studies is there is little, if any, research to support any of these claims that cannabis is medicinal, that it's healthy, that there's all these benefits. And when you go into these online forums, most of the comments talk about the medicinal and or therapeutic benefits of cannabis, not only to any brain, but to the ADHD brain. I've seen a lot of it. After looking at the research, I've now learned that it is not medicinal, it is not healthy, and it's generally dangerous to the ADHD brain. Now, because it was so difficult for me to find a lot of research, I am getting most of my information from Dr. Roberto Olivardia, you know, the science part. And I trust him a lot. So he's one of my primary resources for RSD and addiction. He's a clinical instructor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. And he has a private psychotherapy practice in Lexington, Massachusetts, where he specializes in ADHD, body dysmorphic disorder, eating disorders, and OCD. He is also on the scientific advisory board for Attitude Magazine, as well as the professional advisory board for ADA. Attention Deficit Disorder Association, CHAD, Children and Adults with ADHD. That's what CHAD stands for. So there are two active compounds that make up cannabis. THC, which is Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol. <laughs> I said it. And CBD or cannabidiol. Cannabidiol. I said it. Okay. I think that's right. And the THC is the part that makes you high. The cannabidiol is what we call CBD. And this is about the science of cannabis and ADHD, but I'm not talking about CBD. You should also know that there's no research that links CBD oil to ADHD symptom relief. That doesn't mean that it might not help you. You know, I've been told by many of you that CBD oil really helps you with your anxiety. There's just no research, no published data, no randomized clinical trials that support the use of CBD as a treatment for ADHD. But that doesn't mean that it might not work for you. So when we're talking about the ADHD brain, we know that the frontal lobe of our brains takes three to six more years to develop and mature than the non-ADHD brain or the neurotypical brain. This could mean that an ADHD brain is not fully matured until like 25, 26, 27, maybe even 28. So why is that so important? Because THC's effects are more impactful to the ADHD brain, and especially the adolescent ADHD brain. So how does THC actually work? Remember, it's the compound in cannabis that makes you high. So you have these cannabinoid receptors all over your body. And what THC does is it attaches to these molecules on neurons in the brain, and it activates and disrupts those connections. It actually, what it does is it gives too much feedback to those neurons, which slows down the signaling and communication between neurons in the brain. 
Dr. Olivardia was talking about, it's kind of like you're putting your brain on a dimmer switch. And now, when we're talking about medical marijuana, when we're talking about the medicinal effects of marijuana, you need to know that there are only three instances where marijuana is FDA approved. Number one, some pediatric epilepsies. Number two, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. And number three, wasting conditions like HIV. And wasting is where a debilitating disease causes muscle and fat tissue to waste away. So you're getting way too skinny and you're just, you know, you're failing to thrive. So cancer would be another example of that. Now, when you're talking about medical marijuana, the THC levels that are approved are very low. The THC is much higher when you're talking about using marijuana or cannabis for recreational use. And when there's proper medication monitoring, there are very low rates of addiction to cannabis. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. Again, just because it feels good doesn't mean that it's medicinal. I mean, if I have two cocktails, yeah, I feel good, but that doesn't mean that alcohol is actually good for my brain. Now, what experts are most concerned about is cannabis and the adolescent brain, and there's good reason for that. I had no idea of these statistics, but 4.8% of 10th graders and 8% of 12th graders use cannabis every single day. Again, Alcohol isn't good for you either, right? But most young people, they're not using it every day. And it's this illusion among adolescents that it's healthy and it could be medicinal, which leads a lot of them to use it more. And I can tell you, having a teenager at home, that is definitely the thinking, that it's safe, it's healthy. Adults are just not up on the newest research or information. And the reason why they feel this way is because when they go into chat rooms, when they talk with their friends, when they Google it, there's all kinds of information out there about the medicinal effects of cannabis. But there are no studies that support this. Now, my son, thankfully, or maybe not thankfully, but he gets anxiety from it, so he can't do it. You know, he's a lot like me in that he doesn't like the feeling of being under the influence of anything. But I have to tell you, I watch him and I am now making a point of talking about this whenever I can. I hope I can get him to listen to this podcast. <laughs> so Dr. Olivardia cited a study that showed that vaping of cannabis has doubled for college students between 2017 and 2018. Again, Daily or nearly daily use of cannabis, it was at 5.8% in 2018 for college students. And for those that don't go to college, they have higher rates of daily cannabis, daily or nearly daily use of cannabis, and that's at 11.1%. And nearly daily use is 20 out of 30 days. So it is a lot of cannabis. So let's talk about the negative effects of cannabis first. Cannabis hampers motivation, both short and long-term. It's also been shown to alter memory. Now, after the age of 25, the effects aren't as pronounced. It alters the ability to shift attentional focus. It reduces processing and learning. So taking in new information, you know, being able to learn in school. Certainly when you're under the influence, but studies show that even a day or two after you've smoked, 
which I didn't know that either. It impairs driving because it's still in your system a couple of days later. It affects balance and posture and coordination, reaction times. It affects motor coordination. It increases appetite. Time perceptions become skewed. And it blunts your affect, meaning that, you know, you become emotionalist. You're sort of flat and robotic. And I don't know if you know anyone who smokes cannabis daily. They do become like that. It can also reduce impulse control. So those are all of the things that many of us with our ADHD brains, we already struggle with, right? Motivation and memory and focus and learning and time perception and impulse controls. So how does the THC actually do this? And this is fascinating and why, well, let me just tell you what it is before I I go into explaining anymore. Okay, so in our brains, we have neurons. And out of these neurons, we have what are called dendrites. I want you to think of the branches of a tree. And so for a healthy brain, we want those branches or dendrites to be long, like for them to be long branches. And we want a lot of branches so that those dendrites can connect with other dendrites from other neurons. And this is what creates a healthy brain, right? It allows us to better process. It allows us to better learn. And so what scientists did is they used adolescent rats, and they administered THC to some of them. They discovered that those rats with the THC, their dendrites were much barer. And it looks like for some part of the brain, this is reversible, but for other parts of the brain, it may not be. So what THC is doing to those adolescent rats, it is actually altering the architecture of their brains. What we've also discovered is when we're applying this to adolescent brains is the earlier these young people start using THC, the worse the outcome. So why could this be? Well, when you're younger than 25, cannabinoid receptors are concentrated in the white matter of the brain. And that's the part of the brain that's responsible for communication and learning and memory and emotions. So once the brain is fully formed, so 25 and older for us, for ADHD brains, those receptors are in other parts of the brain. So what that means is that by ingesting THC at a young age, you could be permanently affecting parts of the brain that are responsible for neuronal connections. In one study in New Zealand, they found that cannabis use disorder, it's called CUD, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, was associated with a loss of an average of up to eight IQ points in mid-adulthood. Those who used heavily as teenagers and then quit as adults, they did not recover those IQ points. People, however, who only used heavily in adulthood, they didn't lose IQ points. So clearly, it is that adolescent, young adult brain that is most affected by THC. We've also discovered that cannabis can cause chronic bronchitis, chronic inflammatory lung disease, emphysema, severe bouts of vomiting and dehydration. Is it truly a gateway drug or does it just happen that it's the first substance that young adults and adolescents might try? We don't know. But studies in rats show that THC may prime the brain to have an enhanced response to other drugs. So it could, in fact, be a gateway drug. So what they're saying is that I don't know what the sequence of drugs are today, but I know when I was a teenager, a young adult, 
People may start with weed or pot, and then they would move on to, say, cocaine. And so what these studies seem to indicate, if THC is actually priming the brain, is if you move from weed to cocaine, you have a much more pleasurable response when you do the cocaine than a brain that is not primed with THC. So that's super scary to me. So the other thing that I had no idea about is that THC has negative effects on the heart. Again, I never heard about this. You know, I just thought, okay, you smoke weed, you're all peace and love, everything is slowed down. In fact, what cannabis does is it raises your heart rate. It dilates blood vessels, which means that the heart has to pump harder. So let's say your normal heart beats at 50 to 70 times a minute. It goes up to 70 to 120 beats per minute for three hours after ingesting cannabis. So your risk of having a heart attack is also many times higher in the hour after using it. So if you have a pre-existing cardiovascular issue, and I, I'm assuming, you know, if you're an adolescent, you probably don't even know you would have that, this is a major risk. So what else did I learn? Cannabis can lead to mental health disorders and it can exacerbate existing mental health problems. You know, I think that people who suffer from anxiety and depression, a lot of the comorbid conditions, maybe OCD, you know, the things that those of us with ADHD may struggle with as well. You know, we may feel better when we smoke, we're more relaxed, we're more calm in the short term, but long-term studies show something really different. The use of cannabis of course, it could be an attempt at self-medicating those comorbid aspects of ADHD that I was just talking about. But the studies show that the use of cannabis contributes to and it exacerbates these existing mental health issues, things like paranoia and panic and depression. There's actually a correlation between an increased cannabis consumption and a higher suicide rate. Now, for those of us with ADHD, it can be an even bigger problem because it can also develop into a cannabis use disorder. And that is where you're taking more and more cannabis because you develop a tolerance and then suddenly you find that you're addicted. It affects work. It affects school. It affects social relationships. You know, you can end up getting yourself into these dangerous situations in order to buy the cannabis that you ordinarily would have never gotten yourself into. And then one of the things that I consistently heard and read is that you cannot get addicted to cannabis. And that is not true. I, I think my son was the one who was, who was telling me this at one point. 9% of adults are addicted. 18% of adolescents are addicted. That is almost 20% of adolescents. 30% of those who use cannabis are thought to have some symptoms of cannabis use disorder. And if you're under 18 you are four to seven times more likely to develop a cannabis use disorder than an adult. So how does all this affect the ADHD brain? Well, we know that we don't make enough dopamine, right? We don't make enough norepinephrine. Well, THC actually increases dopamine release, which is why our brains would like it. But over the long term, our ability to naturally produce these good chemicals in our own bodies without cannabis is blunted. So what we end up doing is chasing dopamine. We are constantly kind of upping the ante, taking more and maybe moving on to other drugs to get that dopamine high, that feel good feeling. 
I'm going to say it another way. The more you put a substance like THC in your body, the less your brain is going to produce what it needs to produce naturally to regulate your mood. And so your body, your brain, you start to feel like you need the substance, the drug to produce those good neurochemicals, which is really scary for those of us with ADHD because we already know that we don't make enough of them naturally, specifically dopamine. So we need more THC to feel as good as we did last time, and our own bodies produce less because we're relying on the THC. This is also not the cannabis that we may have been smoking in the 70s, the 80s, or even the 90s. In the 80s, THC content was as low as 2%. In the 90s, the average THC content in a joint was 3.8%. In 2014, it was 12 0.2%. It's a totally different substance in the brain, especially in the adolescent brain, especially in the adolescent ADHD brain. You know, Dr. Olivardia was talking about these cannabis conventions, and the goal was to make the highest THC wax that you can make. I don't know if the wax is what's in the dab pen or it's called a dab pen, but you probably heard that term floating around. But anyway, this wax that they were making, that they would be having these competitions about, they were 80 to 90% THC. Probably the scariest thing about all of this, though, is the link between cannabis and psychosis, which is what I would like to talk about next. So the first question is, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Does cannabis cause psychosis? Or is it that those who are prone to psychosis, like those who have schizophrenia, are they more likely to gravitate towards cannabis at a younger age because they're self-medicating these symptoms that are starting to come out? You know, they may not yet have a schizophrenia diagnosis, but they are experiencing symptoms. And the studies, they don't make this clear. But what we do know for sure is that cannabis users, the more they smoke, the higher they are at a risk for psychosis. So if you have a family history of psychotic disorders and you are a heavy cannabis user, you have a much larger risk of not only developing a psychotic disorder, but developing it at a much younger age. Smoking cannabis daily increases the chances of psychosis by nearly five times compared to people who have never used cannabis. And the amount of cannabis that you're using, the potency of the cannabis, the age where you first start using it, and your family history or genetic vulnerability, they can all influence your chances of developing psychosis. And so again, you know, Olivardia was talking about how he's seen cannabis-induced psychosis from high THC edibles especially. And he was saying that he had a patient who was 16 and he took an edible that probably had 70 to 80% THC. And for two weeks, he had all the signs of schizophrenia. He was talking to himself. He was seeing things. He was hallucinating. You know, it was truly frightening. And so Olivardia was talking to doctors at hospitals about, you know, this condition, about this psychosis that's induced by cannabis. And what he was told was that they see it all the time. Now, in his patient's case, the 16-year-old boy, the symptoms, thank God, they subsided. But, I mean, when you really think about what can this do to your brain? And I want to tell you, my daughter, the 21-year-old, she has seen this happen in at least three of her friends where they, it was months of really, really struggling because psychosis was the result of their high cannabis use. 
I also, I spoke to a woman whose son's symptoms did not subside for a year. So he had cannabis-induced psychosis for a year. For a year, he had all the symptoms of schizophrenia. What I also want to say is not everyone who smokes cannabis is at a risk for psychosis, but there definitely is a subset of people who carry a specific gene variant that affects dopamine that are at a greater risk of developing psychosis, especially if they use cannabis in adolescence. And what we also know is that people with ADHD are often carrying this genetic variant with dopamine signaling issues. So it may be that people with ADHD who develop a cannabis use disorder in adolescence are in fact at a higher risk of psychosis. Now, this hasn't been studied yet. This is something that Dr. Olivardia was talking about. But as you can see, it's troubling. And if I had a child with ADHD, I would do everything I could to educate them on what cannabis can do to their brain. Now, what has been studied and what does seem clear when we're talking about ADHD is that ADHD is associated with substance abuse. You know, we self-medicate in order to try to feel better. Now, if we use stimulant medication in adolescence, you know, medication for ADHD, if it works for you, there is a 50% less risk of addiction. We also know that those with ADHD, they're more likely to engage in cannabis use, right? We're impulsive. And those who are hyperactive use at an earlier age than those who have inattentive ADHD. So why would cannabis be so appealing to the ADHD brain? Well, it activates the brain's reward system, right? It releases dopamine at higher levels than typical. And so if you have a bored brain, THC is really rewarding. But there's no evidence that cannabis in the long term is helpful to the ADHD brain. So if you have cannabis use disorder, how do you treat it? Well, First, you have to treat the ADHD. I mean, it's the same thing if you have anxiety and depression and ADHD. First, you have to treat the ADHD. And again, there is no evidence that stimulant medication triggers or exacerbates existing substance abuse among those with ADHD. In fact, as I just said, the risks are 50% less. Now, one thing that's really interesting is when you stop using, even within the week, you automatically score higher in tests. There are no approved medications for cannabis use disorder. There is, however, a study by Dr. Kevin Gray, which was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and it found that the supplement, and I've talked about it before, um, it's called NAC, N-A-C, oh my God, okay, how am I going to pronounce this? It's N-acetylcysteine, I think that's how you say it, and there is a study that shows that this supplement may help adolescents and young adults with cannabis addiction. And this is the same supplement that I was talking about in previous podcast that was all about repetitive body focused behaviors like nail biting and skin picking. So NAC was supposed to help. I think it was 30% of patients on that, but I can't really remember what the statistic was, but I do remember it was that supplement. Okay. So First of all, we said you need to treat the underlying conditions, right? Like ADHD. 
like anxiety, like depression. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has shown to work. DBT has been shown to work. Um, DBT is dialectical behavior treatment. And what you're basically doing is you're just teaching the patient skills of mindfulness. You're teaching them about emotional regulation. You're teaching them how their brain works. I'm also going to list um, two resources as far as for treatment centers. I think bottom line, after learning all of this about cannabis and ADHD, I think even more so in addiction, it applies to all of it, right? We need to move away from the moralizing when it comes to drugs and alcohol because it just doesn't work. You know, I also did a podcast on addiction, which, which really taught me so much about why certain brains are even addicted. It is not a character flaw. We need to get away from this. We need to focus on the science and how these substances affect our brains. You know, our kids are smart. And I really believe that if we give them the science, because trust me, they're hearing all about how cannabis is healthy and medicinal from their friends. You know, I think we're going to be much more effective at getting them to stop or at least getting them to reduce their use of it. I, I honestly think the science will freak them out. So there really is a difference between using cannabis before 25 versus after 25. And maybe it's even after 28 for ADHD brains, right? All of our brains develop later and every ADHD brain is different. So there may be some of you out there where you should wait until you're 28. You just don't want to be exposing this stuff to a developing brain. And you absolutely don't want to be exposing it to an adolescent ADHD brain. So that is what I have for you for this week. As always, you are listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this podcast, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal, my goal, is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they can discover their amazing strengths. And your reviews really help in that regard. For me, they're like those little gold stars we used to get on our work when we were kids. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm going to see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. If you liked what you heard, we sure would appreciate a review. And not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, well, that's also the name of our free Facebook group. Go look it up. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. We'd love to have you join us. You can also find all my details over at tracyoutsuka.com. Don't forget, I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.